I'll take heckling over like lack of audience attention any day. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Bluebox Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by Code Climate. Raise the visibility of quality within your team with Code Climate and start shipping better code faster. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimate. This episode is sponsored by SendGrid, the leader in transactional email and email deliverability. SendGrid helps eliminate the cost and complexity of owning and maintaining your own email infrastructure by handling ISP monitoring, DKIM, SPF, feedback loops, white labeling, link customization, and more. If you'd rather focus on your business than on scaling your email infrastructure, then visit www.sendgrid.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 129 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. Josh Susser. Uh, good morning from San Francisco, where the visibility is about 50 feet. Avdi Grimm. Good morning from Pennsylvania. Katrina Owen. Good morning from Denver. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Ben Ornstein. Hello from ThoughtBot in Boston. So, Ben, you're you're the host of a fairly popular podcast. Wait, don't say that on our show. <laughs> Competition, man. From a tiny, little, and barely relevant podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the same it's the same name as the blog, right? Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. That's right. We only Which have the ability to, <clears throat> to come up with one good with name for a few years. Yeah, you have to say giant robots. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. There yeah, it is. Much better. Man, somebody's going to take that and like make it a soundbite on their phone. So, we will give you it's an amazing name. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Ben, you were saying? <laughs> well, we, we have the ability to come up with like one good name per decade or so. So we just use it for all our things. So you're about due? Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, we, well, we, we, Giant Robots was the name of the blog for a long time. And so when the podcast came around, we're like, eh, we'll call it that too. Yeah. <laughs> so I beg to differ because you come up with good names for every single one of your podcast episodes. Mm, well, thank you. Ah, very we're, good. We're fortunate to have people listening as we record and they sort of jot down different quotes from the episode. And then we kind of we, we snag one of those and make that the title. Yeah. So kind of the, the whatever weirdest thing gets said during the hour is generally what ends up as the title. We yeah. tried to come up with an interesting title like two weeks ago for an episode. We were all joking around and throwing out random ideas, and Mandy couldn't tell if we were serious or not, so she just went with a tame title. So if that tells you how bad we are at coming up with interesting titles. <laughs> mm. the, the problem with picking the, pull, pulling those quotes, though, is that the, they have... It's hard to tell what the episode is about, and we get people complain about that every, every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair so, point. So anyway, by way of introduction, you host the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. You've also spoken at various conferences about uh, refactoring, and, and those talks have been excellent. I know I'm missing something. <laughs> so go ahead and fill in for what I missed. Uh, th- I mean, those are the big things. I also, so I work at ThoughtBot in Boston. Uh, I run our Learn program, which is us sort of turning around and taking the things we've learned as professional Rails consultants and teaching it to other people, uh, mostly sort of intermediate and advanced Rails programmers or people that are looking to get their first Rails job or build an app on the side. So I've been, I, I started off as one of our consultants and now I'm, I'm running that side of the business. Oh, cool. so I'd like to add a few things. Ben. <laughs> 
is one of the few people who is able to do live coding well and entertain the audience at the same time. Mm. Uh, and so if you ever get a chance to see Ben live code, you should go do that. Uh, drop everything and go see it. Another thing that Ben does is that he's uh, very good at Vim and he helps other people become better at Vim. Hmm. Thank you. That's, that's much nicer than me having to brag about those things. It's, it's better to have you say them. That's actually kind of one of the reasons I asked Ben to come on the show today. I have seen Ben uh, live code in uh, two talks now. And uh, also I watched your uh, Peep Code episode that you did. Um, oh, cool. And uh, in both your GoGoGo talk and the Peep Code episode, you gave hints at this underlying strategy you have of mm-hmm. tool sharpening. Uh, And I I found it really fascinating. Uh, So that's why I I asked you to come on. In the Gogoruko talk, uh, you didn't go into it as much, but uh, one of the things you did was you showed us this long list of, like, history in your shell. And then we were were talking about the various items, because it's obvious from your history that, you know, a a good portion of it, maybe 90% or so, is the shortcuts you've built. Mm Mm-hmm. You want to talk about uh, what you do there? And yeah, I'd love to. So I'm, I'm a huge believer in the power of habits. I think the things that you can manage to make yourself do regularly can have incredible results. And so a few years ago, let's say five years ago, uh, I, started, I decided to get kind of serious about making my environment really excellent uh, and improving my efficiency that way. And so I got in this habit of spending the first 10 or 15 minutes of my day on tool sharpening. And so... What I, would, what I started was I started a little text file that I would add to during the day. So when I was doing something that felt inefficient or felt like whenever I had that, that inkling, like there must be a better way of doing this. Um, so I would add it to the list and, and then I'd pull one of them off in the morning. And so I started most mornings by just doing something simple like making an alias for a command I use in the shell a lot. Or I'd, uh, something like I finally need to research how you know, the Vim expression register works. Um, and go to do some uh, some diving on a readme or something like that. And I just I thought of it as sort of slowly sanding down the rough edges of my environment. So anything that kind of like irked me, I would just try to spend a little time on every morning. Uh, and what I found was after f- not very long of this, I was noticeably faster at the things I needed to do every day. Uh, and it was starting to have a huge impact on my productivity. And so I started talking about that. Even in my first talk I ever gave, which is at RailsConf about Vim, I started talking about, uh, and I recommended that people keep a tool sharpening list. In a little text file is fine, in a little thing next to your computer, but just something where you jot down the annoyances, the rough edges that bother you, and then try to build a habit of tackling a little bit of that every day. That's awesome. I I do that too, a lot. And uh, I, I really love it too. Interestingly, when I talk to other people about it, a lot of times they seem kind of ho-hum about the idea. And mm-hmm. that the complaint that gets thrown back at me a lot, and perhaps you've heard this one, is um, I like to leave my environment just the way it is so that when I go to another environment, you know, that, that them will be exactly like that without my, you know, leader keys changed or anything like yeah. that. You know, that like... It, they'll be comfortable in any stock environment. Have you heard that? I've heard that a million times. Pretty much every time I bring this up, someone says that. And I guess you have to weigh the, the pros and co- the benefits. To me, I spend a lot of my time on my own machine, and the, ch- the changes and optimizations I've made have sped me up substantially. It's In a way, it's some of my secret sauce, I think, is, is partly why I'm so fast at, at certain things. 
like my VimRC at this point is almost 10 years old. It's got 10 years of improvements in there. And that's, that's actually pretty huge. And so if you are constantly on other machines and constantly pairing with other people and you really, really value that portability, then maybe it is worth more to you to stay in a completely stock setup. But I doubt it. I think for most people, it's just an unwillingness to start doing these customizations. I think most people would be net better off by uh, working on, on proving their environment more. But I, I will say that, so I, I, I do pay the penalty, which is I'm lousy to pair with. Everything is remapped. I have all these custom things that are now completely burned into muscle memory. So when I jump on someone else's setup, it is really hard for me. Uh, it takes me a long time to kind of get into the groove on their system. Uh, so it, there, there, is, there is a small downside there. Have, have, you been, have you been competing in the national competitions? <laughs> I, I mean, uh, there is like a Vim Derby, isn't there? Is there? I didn't know about this. I don't know, but this is amazing. Keep talking. <laughs> well, the, I I found that the internet rarely lets me down. So I bet I bet if we Google for something like you know Vim competition, we could find people who are racing their Vim setups. That could be. And, although for me, it's I don't claim to be like the fastest person in Vim. Period. It's just that for the way I work and the order I typically open files and the way I jump between them and the edits I type I typically make I am pretty fast. And that's and that's really what it's all about. It's about customizing the work your own workflow, not just sort of a general workflow. Yeah, and I think it's good to point out like this isn't always about speed too. Like um so a good example I ran into just the other day is um I have this Rails app where it's meant to be started up with Foreman because Foreman brings up like the the app itself, but it also brings up Memcache, which it uses for some caching and stuff like that. But I always forget that when I go into it and I'll just right. uh, use a shortcut to fire up the Rails server and then I'll start using the app and I'll realize like Memcache isn't there and that's why it's behaving weird or something. And so then I got smart like the other day and I realized my shortcut for firing up Rails could be smarter. And so I went in and tweaked it, and now it looks for the presence of a proc file when I fire it off. And if there is one, then it starts up Foreman, and if there's not, then it does the standard, you know, start up the Rails server thing. And now I just don't make that mistake anymore, right? Absolutely. Well, So one of the really interesting things here is to riff on what James said. It's not about speed. It's going back to what you said earlier, Ben, about anything that irked you. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the rough edges. It's the annoyances. It's the thing that takes your mind off of what you're doing. Right, exactly. I was, I was actually going to say that a different way, and that is is that it's about flow. And if you can stay in the flow and the groove while you're working, then you get more done, you feel more satisfied with what you did, as opposed to um, when you have those interruptions, even if they're small ones, you know, it breaks that flow it, and it interrupts the way that you work. And, and that's really what it boils down to usually for me when I am uh, optimize something like that. Totally. Yeah. So, so, Ben, do you actually make tr- like choose which tools you use based on how easy they are to customize? Hmm. Uh, I don't know if I explicitly set out with that goal. I got lucky in picking Vim a long while back. And finding out that it's insanely customizable, but I haven't I haven't thought about that for new tools so much so much except to think that like I almost could never leave, leave Vim because of how great it is for me now. Mm-hmm. Josh, I was going to say no because he would have picked Emacs. 
<laughs> I do. I do envy Emacs for certain things. If I, if I could program my editor with Lisp, I'd be really happy. Well, there's a way to do that. <laughs> it, yeah, right. If I could program my Vim editor with Lisp, <laughs> you, you can do that too. You just go into Emacs and then turn on uh, evil mode. I think it is. Uh-huh. It's basically yeah. okay. So so Ben Ben, I asked asked that choice because I remember you know when I used to program all the time in Smalltalk the. All of Smalltalk is there within Smalltalk, and including the development tools and the compiler and all that. So, mm-hmm. so you can you, you can go in there and change almost anything you want about the uh, development environment. And I used to build you know custom extensions to the development environment to help me do whatever programming task I was doing. And I, I'm curious if you if you ever do anything like that in Vim, where you have some programming task that you keep doing over and over again on a project, and you just you know, put together some extensions or some tools to, you know, basically build a custom tool to help you do your work. I don't know if I've ever done that to a level where I would call it a tool, but I am pretty, I do make small customizations in my VimRC for things I'm doing a lot on projects. Like one thing I do is I embrace my typos. So sometimes I come across a variable that is shows up in my app a lot that I just cannot type correctly. And I'll just mm-hmm. do an, uh, an alias for the incorrectly typed version to the correctly typed version. Um, <laughs> nice. I actually do this. I do this a lot, and, and so like I'll make little things like that. And you know, if I have sort of one-off tasks for a project, I'm I'm pretty good at writing macros. So I'm I'm usually I'm reasonably aggressive about using them when I have to make a bunch of changes. Uh, I've gotten there's there's a little, a little bit of an art to writing a macro that you can just replay a bunch of times. It's sort of like writing a little generalized procedure for text editing. And uh, but once you get the hang of it, you can you can use them pretty to do some pretty impressive things. Gary Bernhard is pretty big on this particular point. Like he, um, if you watch his destroy all software videos and stuff, uh, he talks about it some in there, but he will like in a project, he will just map leader keys in them on the fly, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. doing this thing a lot where I bounce over and run this test or something. And so he yes. will just define that as a leader key right there while he's working. Yeah, I do that to save myself during pairing because I have a few leader commands that I use uh, constantly. And so uh, when I jump on someone else's setup, I'll often map a couple leader commands right there just for the, my, my favorite couple things that are almost impossible for me to get out of the habit of using. It's like I a little shim. inspired me to, to finally bite the bullet and uh, enter a, a spell, an automatic spelling correction for initialize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. So, I, so I never. T- so, yeah. So, I I can't type initialize either. So, I have a, a a thing that expands to that entire method. Actually, yeah. So I can't. I, I, I can't that. type. I can't type initialize. So I spent uh, an hour and a half practicing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> All valid approaches. <laughs> Two different approaches to the same problem. Yeah, so the so difference is Katrina's approach actually makes her a better person. <laughs> there's, a, there's a meditation in practicing typing. But this, yes. that kind of gets down to flow. So like, if you want to stay in flow, you can sort of eliminate your mistakes or you can embrace your mistakes. And so you know, when you practice typing something correctly, you can eliminate that mistake. I sort of embrace that, hey, my fingers want to type initialize incorrectly all the time. So let's just say that's okay and, and figure out a way to get around it. Well, and think of all the time you're saving by not practicing. <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can use that time to make yourself a better person. And By ways. not becoming a better person, yeah. Now, um, I know another thing you do, uh, Ben, that I've seen in your uh, talks and the peep code and stuff, 
when you have something that you want to retrain, you will define the alias for the wrong version and that's make right. it not do that thing, but tell you what you should do instead. That's that's right. So I, I had one of these typo situations where instead of git push, I would type git pasa over and over again. And so I said, okay, well, this is dumb. Let me just map um, gp or no, git pasa to git push. And so I did that for a while. And I was like, why am I typing this such a long thing all the time? And so I re-aliased that to gpush. No, so I wanted to go to GP eventually. It was my final destination. I was like, okay, let's do two characters. Only I kept typing my old alias, which was like gpush, one word. Uh, and so then when I realized I wasn't using GP, I had gpush say, just echo, use GP, and then actually call GP itself. Uh, so I got a little <laughs> reminder every time I use my wrong, slightly longer alias. This is actually a really good habit. Like uh, when teaching other people, when they do the long version, I try to make them do the short version afterwards three times in a row. And one of the things that I do in Vim is I, I disable the commands that I don't want to be using anymore. So if mm. people come on my computer, I've disabled escape, I've dis- disabled backspace, and I've disabled the arrow keys, and I'm, I'm working on maybe disabling HJKL. And mm-hmm. um, people can't... Wow, think. nice. Yeah, no, I, there's, there's big ba- value in that. And this is something I recommend in basically all my Vim talks, which is uh, when I'm trying to learn a new command, if I, if I realize I've missed an opportunity to use it, I'll back up and then redo it using the correct command. Because the thing you're trying to build is that muscle memory. You're trying to build that automatic, I want this to happen, therefore my fingers just do the right thing. And you don't get that if you don't actually think, hey, I need this to do this, and then experience it happening with the right command. I want to stress the value of disabling things. Like, I don't know why, but for a long time, I was like, I shouldn't be turning things off, but I'm way over that now. And I realized it is so great. Like, especially if you're an Emacs user or something in Emacs, absolutely every single key does 50 things, depending on which modifiers you hit it with. So if you ever mistype something, it actually does something and it's horrible. So I run into that all the time. And I've just gotten in the habit of now if I mistype it and I, I do something, I'm like, I would never want to do that. I just go shut that off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right yeah, after piece- this call, I'm going to go uh, disable capital Q. In oh, yeah. Capital Q. I, I actually did that probably a couple of years ago, and it was a great decision. Did, are you talking about the capital Q in normal mode or in command or in like a command mode, like colon capital Q? Uh, no, just capital Q. Okay, I don't even remember what that does anymore. I think I, I killed it I, something so long ago. I have no idea what it does. All I know is I have to type out the word visual to get out of it. That's right. It switches to X mode. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I got rid of that. That was, that was one a, of those uh, eliminate mistakes ideas. There was something I hit in org mode one day in Emacs that literally means something like take half my file and go hide it on my hard drive somewhere. <laughs> people after when I when I give Vim talks, I always tell people that you know not don't use the arrow keys. That's kind of one of the main commandments of Vim. And people will say, you know, come up to me afterwards and say, but how do I stop using the arrow keys? And my first reaction is like, well just stop doing it and, and don't ever do it again, starting right now. Uh, I don't. I sometimes don't understand why people need extra help on that. But what I say is, okay, if you really can't get yourself out of the habit, then just remap them. And I've, I, so some people I know uh, will map them to nothing. We'll map them to no ops, and uh, other more, more trollish friends of mine will map them to random directions. <laughs> so you, 
The last time I tried to use Vim pairing with someone, hitting the arrow keys would say, oh, hit the J key. Right. Hit the K. Yeah. And nice. it, which, which made me furious. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, you, you know what, what I want to do. You That's won't right. just do it. Shut up. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> so, so that, ben, serious, serious question. Do, do you have any way of prioritizing the things that you're working on as you're, like you said, you know, every day you just work on some stuff to improve your environment. There's, mm -hmm. you, know, th you know, I look at, you know, the field of things that I don't know and determining what are the things that I want to level up on um, can be really daunting sometimes. There's so much out there. It's basically sorted by agony. Okay. Uh, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, hit my like, if, on, if like, guys, like on Hitmonk, yeah. Exactly, exactly. If you haven't used Hitmonk before, it's a flight. It's a service for searching flights, and, and their default sort is Agony, which I think is great. And Agony is a combination of how long your layovers are, how long the total travel time is, how much it costs, and, and sort of it, it folds in a bunch of different factors. Um, and that's kind of what my sorting is by. It's just this general sense of like, what's going to give me a good payoff because I do it a lot versus you know how painful is it when I have to do it manually. It's kind of a combination of a, different, a few different things. So you've talked a lot about uh, get, uh, sort of aliases, bash type aliases or shell aliases, and then also improving your Vim configuration. What other types of tool sharpening activities do you do? I'm trying to, so not enough is the answer. So I'm trying to get better about this. I, I've written a lot of Ruby over the last couple of years, and I'm like okay at it, but I, I haven't tackled I've written around a lot of Rails apps in particular, so I'm getting like the hang of Rails in general, but I haven't forced myself into like a wildly new programming paradigm in a little while, so I'm trying to be better about this. So I've been, I've been dabbling around with Clojure and a little bit of Elixir, and uh, I'm trying, I have this goal of, of giving myself a couple different projects that are wildly outside the realm of web programming. So like I want to build a little interpreter or a compiler of something, maybe some sort of like graphics programming and just sort of peel off one or two projects that are really different than what I do every day to kind of force myself out of my comfort zone. I'm actually, uh, I've planned a little retreat for myself in February. Uh, I was on Twitter lamenting that I haven't read all of um, SICP, the Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, um, which is uh, what MIT uses to teach its like, computation classes. And I was lamenting, I was like, I can't believe I haven't read this whole thing. It's kind of like the Bible for writing programs. And uh, Chris Hunt, uh, who is someone I know from uh, some conferences, works at GitHub, was saying, he's like, oh, man, I had to Google what that was. And so I was like, we should totally just get a cabin and go read that book for a couple weeks. And he's like, I'm in. And so in February, I'm going, we actually ended up choosing Costa Rica. And we got a place near the beach, and we're going to basically bring the book and not come out until we've read the whole thing and done a bunch of exercises. And That's I'm kind of awesome. hoping that will jumpstart my, my learning. So we've we've moved from sharpening tools to sharpening skills. Do you find that that uh, is a graduated uh, scale? I don't know if I understand what you're asking. So when when we talk about sharpening tools, I think about the tools that I use to write code, but not my understanding of programming or my uh, ability to write different languages. I think of those as two different things. Do you think of them more as the same thing? That's a good question. I, I don't I don't know. I haven't I haven't pondered it actively. I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's kind of like, how good are you at getting things done with code when you want to? And so I think the tools are part of that. And if you improve the tools, you'll be a little faster for certain reasons. And if you improve kind of the wetware of your brain, 
by becoming a better programmer and having you know knowledge of more techniques and things to try that probably also helps so i think if you kind of consider it as you have one end goal which is working software that does something uh you it, i think it kind of is just a continuum that makes sense mm-hmm. it really adds to your understanding of things too right like i mean just you know ripping open an editor and making it do something different once you've done that you know you get a new appreciation for how does this thing work and and what can i make it do when i really want to you know or or things like that and and that information you know you go forward with that information so in the future you may decide you know well this is a new little mini language i'm using so maybe it makes sense to write a grammar for my particular editor so that it can syntax highlight it correctly or things like that you know it just uh it expands your thinking a bit. Like I did an automation one time. I have it tab complete when I'm doing like SSH commands or SCP commands and I'm copying a file off of a server. I mm-hmm. went through and made it work so that I can start typing a directory name and I can tab complete it on the remote server. Mm-hmm. And it was it was neat to figure out, you know, what all was involved in that. You know, obviously I have to make some kind of connection and get a listing of, of the files at that point and, you know, filter it out. It was cool. Yeah. I think that this process of beginning to make the world around you conform to what you would like um, expands in a grand way where you start seeing yourself as someone who can affect the world. And it's, it becomes a lot more than about your tools or about your skills or about mm-hmm. figuring out how to write a script, but seeing that, oh, this thing out there in the world doesn't work the way it should or it's too, it's too painful or too complicated, and I can fix that. Hmm, that's interesting. I think I've always had sort of a healthy disregard for like, the way things are quote-unquote supposed to work. Like I've, I've always been a little bit of a disruptive force in, in the organizations I've been a part of when people are like, well, we, you know, we don't do it that way. Or like, no, it has to be like this. You need permission from that person or something. I'm, I disregard that pretty wildly and frequently. And I think that's, so it's, I guess it's not shocking that I, I sort of feel that way in my tools. I feel that way in my code. I feel that way in organizations I'm in. That's kind of just a, it's a general mentality, I suppose. So growing up, the world seemed completely random and arbitrary and accidental to me. And it's only in the past, I don't know, since maybe I was about 30, uh, that, that I, I feel more in control. And so it's completely new to me. <laughs> you kind of uh, talked a little bit about the organizations you're in and things like that. Do you find that uh, you do some of this tool sharpening, not necessarily with the tools that they're using, but with the organization itself, with the team or things like that? Oh, yeah, I try to. I, I, I just... Uh... I don't have a lot of patience for things that seem foolish or slow or just could could be improved. Um, I'm very fortunate to be at ThoughtBot, which is a company that really, really embraces changing processes for the better. Um, there's almost no resistance towards change if you can make a reasonable case for why it will be better, which is like really an amazing thing. But but I've 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 usually, I'm reasonably frequently that per, a person that will try to make some change happen when it seems like something is, is kind of broken. Have you ever been in a situation where you need to make change happen when the organization around you doesn't really encourage that? Absolutely. So I, I had a nightmare of a first programming job. It was a wonderful job in the sense that they took me with no experience and were willing to train me and gave me that first like credential 
of like has worked professionally as a programmer before to sort of get me on my way. But in pretty much every other sense, it was awful. So, uh, for instance, they, they gave everybody 15-inch monitors or 13-inch, some, some tiny screen. And being a developer, I was like, well, I, I could, you know, if I have more screen real estate, I will really be faster. I will, I will make you more money if you buy me a bigger monitor. And so I made this case and was turned down. And so I said, okay, well, that's, you're making the completely wrong decision, but fine. Uh, so what I'm going to do is go out and buy my own. So I went out and bought my own and said, okay, I, I just want to let you guys know I, I bought my own monitor and I'm going to be bringing this in. And they said, no, you can't do that because if you do and it, you know, it catches on fire, our building isn't covered by that insurance policy, so you can't even fix this yourself. And, and this was, there were a lot of other examples like this where the process was what the process was and they really, really didn't want anyone to disrupt it. And it was, I was completely miserable and I almost got fired from this job. And I thought at the time it was because I was like a really bad worker or like I was really lazy or something. And like I, I felt really bad about it. But when I think back on it now, when I look at what I'm able to do today, I think it was really just that I was extremely unhappy because I had no ability to shape my environment and it just completely sapped all my motivation and happiness. So was the right solution to leave the job? Absolutely. Do you think Absolutely. there's a middle ground somewhere? I think in companies that aren't so pathologically averse to change, then absolutely. Um, I, I wouldn't tell everyone as a blanket statement that if you're unhappy because your job has some bad processes, you should quit. But sometimes that is the right answer. I think people are, I think maybe on average people are a little too afraid to try to change processes where they work. Like I have a lot of friends that will tell me like, well, this is, you know, I can't go over there and get this promotion because, you know, this, this VP hasn't approved it or something. And my experience with the corporate world has been that like, if you, if you know the right people and you kind of push in the right way and you make enough noise and you're valuable, you can often get what you want even when it's not, you know, officially allowed. And I think a lot of people don't quite realize that. Uh, and they don't, they don't try to challenge quite hard enough. I'd like to push back a little bit on that. I think okay. that this thing that you said that was like, if you know the right people and know the right bus buttons to push, I think that's absolutely valid and absolutely true. And I think that you might instinctively or not, or somehow through your training, know those things. And for people who don't understand, like I don't understand people very well at all. And I tried to change the first organization I worked at and it was a disaster. And I worked so hard. Like I, I mean, it, I probably used all the wrong techniques and I, I ended up begging and crying basically and throwing fits on the floor practically trying to get this place to change. And it, of course, I mean, in hindsight, of course, didn't work because I wasn't, I didn't know the levers to push. How do you, how do you get better at pushing the right levers? Um, I think you just, so you start small. It's harder to change certain things. So I think you, you start with little stuff and then you work your way up to the bigger things you want to ask for. I think that's probably the best way to do it. Like it starts with, for instance, the one I think a lot of people screw up is it starts with your salary negotiation. So it starts before your first day at the job. Like there's, I know a lot of people that just, you know, they're offered X and they say, great, sounds good. And then they sign and that's it. And if I could, you know, convince every person in the world that ever takes a job to just an answer that with one thing, it's like, well, I was really hoping for X plus whatever, anything that you feel comfortable with and just see what they say. I think people on average could be making a lot more money. And so it's, it starts with like little things like that, like just being, being willing to sort of negotiate and push back just a hair every once in a while, and then you build up to the bigger things. Have you found that, uh, well, I mean, I've seen that some organizations have a higher tolerance to that kind of behavior than others. It's like you said, you know, that first nightmare job where they just couldn't deal with that at all. And I, I've worked mm -hmm. in places like that, too. I find that in general, the smaller the place, 
the higher the tolerance they have for people wanting to change things. Mm-hmm. So that's yes. one of the reasons I like small places. Mm-hmm. Much yeah, easier to- I found that as well, for sure. And, and that's, again, like you, I, I prefer smaller companies, primarily for that reason, I think. One of the things with smaller companies is that they're not getting everything they want done anyway. So if you're finding a way to get something done, they're just going to be thank you for it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. You, they also tend to have like fewer codified policies and procedures. Like if, if you have to go through, if there's an employee handbook that officially spells out something, like once, once they're like, okay, we're, we're a big, we're a, a grown up company now and we need an HR department and we need to have decision, like policies in place for, to handle all the scenarios that come up. That's when I think you tend to find the most resistance to change. Cause it's like, well, it says right here in the employee handbook that no, you can't take a month off. But when you're in a smaller company, they haven't, you know, had that, that, parental oversight come in and so it's like you just go talk to the ceo who's you know one level removed from you or maybe two and and say hey look i want to do this thing and they say well okay we haven't done this before but that's fine i saw it on tv so it must be true (laughs) 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 i found that there's just companies where you know maybe they're they have their own process and whatever but it just doesn't fit me, you know, that, that I just do it a different way. And, you know, and in one case, uh, one particular case, you know, I, I tried to adapt to that system and, and really just couldn't. It was just a bad fit. And, you know, they had their way of doing things and, and, uh, and just couldn't make my system fit that way. And so we ended up parting ways, which was fine, you know. Right. And, and, and it's important that that was fine. Like, I, I, along with, I think people are a little bit, they tend to not try to improve things enough. I think they also tend to not quit enough. Like, uh, there are so many jobs out there and there are so many different companies that have different cultures and different ways of doing things that I, I often pe- see people struggling to try to make something work that is probably never going to work when, you know, the company and you would, would both be happier if you went and did, some, did your thing somewhere else. I think a lot of people have a fear of letting go of that job, and they should. Yeah, so, they probably so, shouldn't. Yeah. So Ben, Ben, um, I want to tie what you're saying to some, to how Katrina was a- approaching it earlier. That mm-hmm. you know, when you're in a tough situation, you can either like change, the, you know, move to a different situation, improve the situation, or improve yourself. Mm-hmm. So, so like, you know, when you're stuck in a job you don't like, you can either fix what's wrong with the job. You can you know, quit and go take a different job or you can, uh, you know, change something about yourself that, you know, may- maybe it's learning a new skill or mm-hmm. you know, what have you. Uh, and, and I think, you know, depending on how, uh, what's up in the whole, si- whole situation, you know, one of those choices is going to be better than the others sometimes. Or, so, so you, I think that quitting is a great thing to do in a lot of cases, but it's not like the, Oh yeah, I just want to quit this job. <laughs> but, but I, but I agree. People don't consider it as an option as, as often as they should. But there's that whole like, okay, do I work on this situation or do I work on myself? Yeah, right? it's you a know, good choice, choice there. And it's, you know, I've, I've been in job situations where it's like, okay, I'm having a real hard time working things out with this coworker or this department or whatever and find that, oh, if I just adjust how I do things a little bit, it removes all the friction and we can just go forward. Mm. And, and I, and so I, I think that the tool sharpening, it's great at the technical and the scripting and the tool use level, but it, you know, there's also, you know, 
stuff you can do at the organizational level and process and interpersonal and you know, even things like oh hey let's let's uh, let's use something like Pivotal Tracker um, in this project, which can you like change the focus of what you're doing from oh I'm trying to bang on Jira and get it to work right to oh now I'm not wasting all the time on that we can actually spend more time talking about the issues that we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I like There's it. A little, it was a little rambling, but, you know. I, I want to go back to uh, sharpening tools as in software tools. We talked a lot about the command line. We talked about text editors. We didn't really talk about your operating system or um, graphical tools that you use and things like that. Yep. Um, so do you, do you find that you're uh, sharpening those tools as well, or is it mostly focused around your programming tools? Uh, that's a good question. I, I do a little bit of, of operating system sharpening. Um, it's, it, it is honestly mostly focused around my editor and shell because that's where I spend a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But as a web developer, I do also you know flip over to the browser. So I, I use a tool called Alfred, which I like a lot, which lets me sort of keyboardize more of OS X. It's kind of like Spotlight on steroids. So there's just more things you can do from the keyboard. You can program a lot of shortcuts into there. You can add some sort of like macro capabilities in there that are pretty fancy. Um, so that's a big thing. That was a, a nice win for me. I also use something called SizeUp, which lets me manage windows with a keyboard, uh, like sort of bounce them around and resize them. And I also use uh, Vimium when I'm in Chrome, which is, is it Vimium? I think it's Vimium, yeah, that lets me uh, basically use Vim keyboard shortcuts for moving around. I guess this is all around the keyboard. That's, that's, this is sort of my one, one of my guiding mantras is I hate the mouse. Um, it's just kind of pretty <laughs> much always user. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and if, if, if you don't hate the mouse, that's fine, but you're definitely wrong because it's just so much slower than almost everything else for almost every, or it's so much slower than the keyboard for almost every single task. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so, fine, but you're wrong. I love yeah. that. Yeah, I, to- I, you're okay to be wrong. Yeah. I use tools like that. I use uh launch bar instead of Alfred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so, so things like that, so, but yeah. Yeah. So Ben, I have, um, I, I have I have one example of something where where the mouse totally beats the keyboard, okay. and that's I, one of the things I love on the Mac is I can go into a terminal window and I can start typing. So I can type like you know some command like uh, WC word count, and then I can go into the window for the document and drag the icon from the title bar into the terminal window, and it will type out the full path to that file so that I can operate on that within the terminal. Ooh, neat trick. Mm. And that, is, that is a neat trick, but like, can't you imagine a much faster workflow for that with like an Alfred shortcut? Like um, two keys kind of thing? Yeah, there might be something like go find the, the, uh, the topmost window and pull the, right. you know, pull, the, pull the title out of it. Yeah, you could do something like that. I, I yeah. can see that. But that doesn't exist out of the box, so it's very much like, okay, am I going to work with, you know, go with the flow or am I going to build something? And right. You know, I, I, I think that there's there's a lot of people who who have your kind of mindset of like, oh my god, the keyboard is great. I'm just gonna like power on, and that's gonna be my approach, and that's totally fine. But I've been using the Mac since like 1984, mm-hmm. and I'm extremely good at using the graphical UI in the Mac. And there's a lot of very subtle things in there that you can explore and level up on, much the same way you can on you know Vim key bindings. Mm-hmm. And and I and I can do some pretty surprising stuff to a lot of people. I mean, I mean wait, that didn't parse right. Can I, can <laughs> I can, quote you on that? <laughs> apparently, yes. No, I can do. I, I I do stuff just as a matter of course using the Mac that a lot of people find surprising. 
mm-hmm. just because you know I, I worked at Apple for many years and learned all of this stuff and how to do it. I wish there were better guides for doing it because some of that stuff is really slick. But yeah. enough of that. There, there definitely are some mouse tricks. The, the thing for me is I view going to the mouse as kind of like a cash miss. Uh, it's like my hands are already on the keyboard, and now I have to move them all the way over to like the slow part of my like of the world, like down to like I have to go to, down down to disk and like actually physically grab another awesome. thing and like move it around. <laughs> and like it's like, but my hands were already on the keyboard, so if I could have done this with the keyboard, then like this would have been faster. I would have saved that travel time. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I gotta say, if I could get um like the the moment when I can get two extra arms installed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I have two hands on the keyboard, one on the mouse, and you know, one holding the phone. Then, you know, I'm great. What if you used your toes on like a trackpad? <laughs> <laughs> so, so back in the day when um, Sutherland was like doing all this research and stuff, they they experimented with a device called a foot rat, and it was mm-hmm. like a mouse but for your foot. Mm-hmm. And so they found the precision was not great enough. So I use a very I use a very fancy keyboard called the Kinesis Advantage, which is like a, a actually great. I totally recommend it. It's a split keyboard. It's got some interesting design decisions in it that make it more comfortable to use. Most notably, it moves things like backspace and escape and every enter all down to your thumbs, and that's really handy. But you also has an option to add on foot pedals, which is kind of awesome. So you can plug in optional foot pedals and put those on the ground. I haven't actually done that yet, but I really want to. And you can math macros to them. So like. I really want something that's like I just stomp on a pedal and like it pushes to production. Like, <laughs> some alarm goes off and like a siren flat like flashes. I was working with David Brady on a, a contract and he broke his arm and uh, he's he's a pretty avid uh, Emacs user and he yeah he was trying to find ways of he he got some foot pedals basically to compensate mm-hmm. for that so that he could use use them as control and whatever so that he could get his work done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we haven't we haven't hit the limits of human ability to to control these things. Like, I think you, foot pedals plus a little voice control plus both hands. I think we could be folding this all together into something pretty awesome. Yeah, we should put a steering wheel on the computer too. <clears throat> Why not? <laughs> it's got an accelerometer. Just pick up your laptop and twist it around. There you go. Right. So we're talking about hardware. Um, do you have any other any other uh, hardware or physical tool uh, hacks that you do? Ways that you sharpen your your tools in the real world? The most important one is I work at like a standing desk at home, and we have standing desks here at ThoughtBot. Uh, I think the best tool sharpening is not sitting all day because sitting is the slow death. Anything that gets you moving more is better. So like when I am sitting, I sit in an Aeron, which I like, um, has nice support. I use a keyboard tray to get my hands a little bit lower so they're in a comfortable position, and that keyboard is, is, is easy on my hands. I had some some RSI issues a few years ago, which was really scary. And I actually delayed taking my job at Thoughtbot because I was like battling these these issues, and I was worried I was going to like start my first day and be like, oh, I can't program for a couple of weeks, you guys. And so I started getting really serious about my setup, and that's when I made those changes: keyboard tray, air on chair, uh, good keyboard. Uh, recently added in the standing desk routine. Uh, and those have all been really good uh, because the most important tool is, you know, your health. To, the, you got to keep that sharp. If you're sick or hurting in pain, you're not going to be able to do good work. So you got to really uh, stay on top of that stuff. And it's so much easier to ha- to instill good habits and and to try to be healthy now than to like try to erase some nasty damage you've done by a few years of bad habits. So even if you're not feeling these pains or or worried about this right now because like you're 20 and not, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, I'd encourage you to try to get in good habits early and never have to worry about it. 
What what kind of a standing desk do you have? I use a geek desk. Okay. Which is great because it goes up and down. Because uh, standing all day isn't awesome either. You want to be able to alternate between the two. Or at least I do. That's what works best for me. So I, I sort of mix between bouts of each. Very happy with the Geek Desk. Yeah, I just ordered the uh, Lifehacker IKEA $25 deal. <laughs> yep, I'm sure that'll work too. I, I, I figured I should try it at $25 before I go spend several hundred dollars on a standing desk. Yeah, but that but, is the... Yeah, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, I totally agree, though, that uh, if you don't feel good, if your health isn't, you know, if you're not taking care of yourself, it, it really makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. In- it's it's amazing how nothing else matters to you once you are not healthy. Like, you you don't think about your health when you are healthy. You, it's just sort of almost completely invisible because you just wake up every morning and feel okay. But when you wake up every morning in pain, suddenly almost nothing else is relevant. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you have to get that emergency solved. So it's it's totally worth being proactive about because it, it just it completely eclipses almost everything else. That's, <laughs> what shoes do you wear at your standing desk? <laughs> oh, that's actually an awesome question. So I, one of my picks is actually a pair of shoes. Should, can I talk about it now? Yeah, go. Okay, so uh, I recently bought a pair of shoes. Uh, the brand is Vivo Barefoot. Dude, I love and, them. Oh my god. I, I searched your pick page and no one has mentioned this before, so I'm going to claim that I'm bringing this to your audience for, first, even if you have talked about it before. Um, so basically, imagine that you live in... So if you live in San Francisco, you can wear those Vibram five fingers and people will not think you're completely crazy. In not Boston... True. Okay. You'll, people, fewer people will think you're crazy. You can pull it off a little bit more in San Francisco. If you live in Boston and you wear those five finger things, it's like, eh, okay, that guy's clearly a programmer. Probably writes Lisp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So if you want that similar idea of a low-profile sole and no art support and a very flat heel, then you can get them, but you can get them in things that look like normal dress shoes. And that's what Vivo Barefoot does. They make sneakers, but more interestingly to me, they make like nice-looking shoes that have incredibly thin soles. And so I switched to these a couple weeks ago, and I'm totally in love. And like the theory is, look, you are an incredible machine that has been evolved over billions of years, and you are designed to have your heel flat on the ground, and your foot already has shock absorption, and it already has balance structures, and it has support for your arch. It has everything you need, and all this stuff that modern shoes give you is wrong and should be avoided. And so it's basically like a seven millimeter patch of rubber that you stand on and nothing else. And it just lets your foot do its thing. And it's already changed how I walk, which is crazy to me. Like I didn't realize I was doing what they call heel striking. So you, it's not normal to like drop all your weight on your heel as your stride moves forward. Um, it's more natural to place your foot down in sort of a more balanced position and spread the weight out. But when you have shoes with thick heels on, like sneakers or dress shoes, that's the position you take. You start doing, you start heel striking. So I had this as part of my gait, and I switched to these shoes, and suddenly I'm like slamming my heels in, on the ground, and I can suddenly feel it for the first time. I'm like, wow, this is all messed up. And so like I've been sh- I've been relearning how to walk, which is not something I thought I'd say at 30. But I'm totally happy with them. Like I feel better after wearing them. And like when I stand all day in dress shoes versus when I stand all day in these shoes, it's it's marked difference. It's vastly better. I think you yeah, actually yeah. kind of hit on a key point there, like that how you changed your shoe, and that is actually like changing how you walk. Mm-hmm. I kind of view that with the whole tool sharpening thing. That that as I dig into these processes and stuff, and as I find these automations, you know, that I can, 
I find new ways of leveraging things. Like I realize I no longer have to make this mistake where I forget to fire up Foreman instead of the Rails server because I have a habit to just go through this automation anyway. So if I just make that automation smart enough to make the right decision, then it just changes how things work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. So yeah, get those shoes. They're awesome. Yeah, I like I, them. I, and, and no one will know. That's the most important thing. <laughs> you look completely normal, which did, is great. Did, Although I keep hoping someone will notice how nice my stride looks now and like kind of comment on it. Like, wow, it's a really nice stride you have, but that hasn't happened today. So, so Ben, I did actually notice that. Oh, thank you. Out here. <laughs> but but I you know, I got training to um, actually pay attention to that when I when I learned massage therapy. Oh. I suddenly started walk, noticing how everybody walked. Yep, it's a very weird thing. Cool. Yeah. So so that's sort of like you know you start with your shoes and you end up with your programming. little things it's like i mean we had a whole episode on coding environments Mm. where we talked about the things that weren't writing code but the stuff that was in support of them yeah and so i think that i think that there's a fair amount of overlap between that episode and what we've been talking about today Mm. i'm glad i could duplicate your previous content (laughs) (laughs) expand on expand on okay yes So uh, what, 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 okay, so, so Ben, Ben, what is the most terrible hack that you are most proud of in your tool sharpening business? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, stupid. It might get him in trouble with the law. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, um, be a bit of a politician and I'm gonna rephrase that question to a question that I'd rather answer, which is, what's the lamest thing I've done that I'm most proud of? Which is, my favorite remapping is, I have mapped, um, control S to be escape colon W enter. So I basically gave myself a little save shortcut in Vim. Um, leave insert mode, write the file, and hit enter. And I calculated it out one time. I think this saved me about a million keystrokes per programming career. And I use it, I don't know, probably 500 times a day, maybe more. Um, and it's, it's a stupid thing where it goes from like uh, escape, colon, W, enter, four keystrokes to two. Um, but those two keystrokes get repeated so often that the savings is actually monstrous. And when you, when you're thinking about RSI, like I am, it's, you know, saving a million keystrokes is a pretty big deal if you want to be programming when you're, you know, old and gray. So that's, that's one of my things that I remap it instantly when I'm on someone else's computer. I just say, I'm sorry, but I have to have this command. And then I, I just, you know, map CS to that. Uh, and they're usually okay with that. Yeah. I, I think we determined before that you're the kind of guy who comes over to visit and turns the toilet paper roll over. Yes, that, somebody heckled me with that during my talk. I think that was probably me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's 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 accurate. It's because the, the problem is you're doing it wrong. So I will I will help you. <laughs> the cool thing in this process is that you, you're always measuring. Like you talk about how you that keystroke felt natural to you, but then you're like, so how many keystrokes will that save me? And mm-hmm. I noticed in your Gogoruko talk, you're like. Let's sort my history by, you know, uh, occurrence and stuff to see, right. you know, how, how often am I using these commands and stuff like that. I think that's awesome that you have this, like, built-in metrics analysis system. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. S- somebody should write, a, like, a profiling tool. Like, you know, like we have the um, profiling tools that, do, like, uh, statistical profiling where they just, like, check in where your code is every, you know, millisecond or something. You know, we could do the same thing for uh, what we're doing with our tools and see where we're spending the majority of our time so that we know where to, where to focus on totally. as, opposed so, to, as opposed to just being a gut feel. 
Absolutely. So I have a command I run in my shell that basically pipes history into and does some awking on it and does some sorting and, and things like that and shows me my like 10 or 15 most used shell commands. And I use that to see what I need to be more aggressive about aliasing. Like what am I typing out fully that often that I don't need to be? I don't know of a, a thing like this for Vim. I think Drew Neal, um, who's the creator of Vimcasts, has started work on this. I don't know if he's released it, but something that sort of watches what you're doing in Vim and records it and tells you, you know, suggest optimizations that way. Because that would be that would be handy to know. Yeah, that's cool. It's a neat idea. So you just you use that command, and if you have something that's sneaking into the top ten, that's a command you're manually typing out, then that gives you the hint that you should automate that. That's right, because that's where the, the most value is, right? It, the things you're doing a lot are and and are annoying to type are the clearly the biggest wins. Yeah, Josh made a pick uh, recently for this. Uh, program called Dash, uh, Documentation Viewer. Yes. And um, it has all these different modules. You know, you can get, and uh, like, so you can have your Rails, your Ruby, your jQuery, your JavaScript documentation, like all in this one search bar. And and then uh, you mentioned Alfred, and, and you can install the Alfred plugin. So you can literally just call up Alfred, and I have it, you know, mapped with just an M in front of it for like man, you know. And um, so I can mm-hmm. just do that. And I, I picked it up after Josh mentioned it and was playing around with it. I can't believe how quickly that changed things for me. Like just having all that documentation in one place and not having to like Google it or go to the particular site that I cared about, you know, or yep. whatever. That's actually job. right at the top. Absolutely. That's right at the top of my list, actually. I've, I've had a thing on that for a while saying I need to get better local documentation. Because I realized I couldn't believe I was like tabbing to my browser and starting a new thing and doing a search and then click like just I was shocked that I had done this for so long and then someone has recommended Dash just like Josh did so that's yeah. that's on my list of things to get going. I, I just lo- I just Very love it for like if if I'm on a if I'm somewhere without internet I can actually still program because my documentation is accessible. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're pretty close to the end of the to- end of our time. Is is there anything else that we didn't talk about that we should? Ben, uh, if if we're wrapping up, maybe you can say if you have any appearances coming up soon. Are you speaking at conferences or? Yes. Uh, well, I'm I'm going to be at RubyConf. I'm not speaking, um, but we're going to be. I I believe we're going to be lugging um, our competing podcast equipment down there and uh, hopefully recording some folks down there. Um, so oh, if you well, write Ruby, and- this out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you write Ruby and are an interesting person and want to be on the podcast, then we should record you while we're there. And then I'm giving uh, my first keynote ever, which I'm really excited about, um, at Garden City Ruby in Bangalore, India, uh, in early January next year. How exciting. Yeah. So that should be fun. That is really cool. You definitely need to see Ben's talks, especially the one where I left goes, I can't agree with Katrina more. I, like, I fall apart when it comes to typing and talking at the same time, but Ben, you just do it so naturally. Well, thank you. I, I've gotten a, My last couple talks have not been live coding, and I really... I miss it. I was like, I just, I'm just not as happy giving a talk that's not live coding, and so I'm going to, I'm going to be going back to that. I think my, I'm almost certain my talk in Bangalore is going to be live coding. That's awesome. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Katrina, what are your picks? I have no picks. James, what are your picks? I've got a couple. First, we recently realized that we were just doing like a, a JSON parse and a JSON 
uh, you know, a two JSON in an app, and it actually turned out to be a significant uh, portion of time uh, that we were spending in the app, which uh, led us to look into these other options. And it turns out there's this pretty cool JSON parser and, and serializer for Ruby called um, OJ, and uh, it's crazy, crazy fast. So, uh, you know, like I say, I wouldn't say this is a normal case, but in our particular case, uh, it turned out that the amount of time we were spending, like, serializing JSON was turning out to be significant. And if that's the case, you can move to this sucker, and it's wicked quick. So uh, that's one. And then uh, I have some picks for the parents out there. Uh, I read this cool article a while back about um, a parent who uh, started their kid off on uh, Linux in a terminal. It was really interesting. And then uh, eventually they gave them Stardex, you know, and, and how they worked through that and that process and how it was very natural. And I, I found it to be cool to read because it just thought, made me think about uh, you know, introducing people to computers and what that can look like in maybe a non-traditional way, uh, which I kind of like. And then uh, we do this thing at my house where uh, we trade off who gets to pick the movie that night, you know, when we're doing a movie night, and um, my three-year-old gets to take turns. And recently she picked uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, uh, and I was kind of surprised. It's a really fun movie. It's a uh, you know, I, I see lots of kid movies because I do have a three-year-old, but uh, there were a couple of points in this one where I was actually, like, cracking up and laughing out loud. So uh, it, I would say it's uh, more enjoyable than most. So if you have kids, it's a, it's a great watch. Those are my picks. All right. Avdi, what are your picks? Well, I will start out with a topical pick. Uh, I was just poking through the picks, and I noticed that um, I don't think – Thoughtbot Learn is actually on our list yet, and uh, and I know um, Ben mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I just wanted to to second that that uh, their Learn service has some really really great material on it. They're, they've got I don't know articles, books, videos, and I've been lucky enough uh, they they gave me access a while back, and you know uh, to p- poke around and stuff, and everything that I've come across has been really top notch. They've got some great stuff on just like. OO design and rails and stuff like that. So um, learn.thoughtbot.com. Uh, ben did not pay me to say this. It's just, <laughs> uh, it, it really is good stuff. He's doing some great work there. Thanks, Abby. Um, I will, uh, I will I'll give another um, sort of topical pick. Uh, so we've, we've been talking about standing desks. My, uh, my new standing desk, desk arrived, uh, I guess, about a week ago. It's, um, I got the Kangaroo Hybrid Pro, I think it's called, or the Kangaroo Hybrid. Basically, uh, the Kangaroo desks, uh, they're not full standing desks. They are desk toppers. So you put it, you put this, this big contraption on top of your desk and you mount your monitor on it. Or in my case, you, you, uh, with the one that I got, you mount your monitor and your laptop on it. And, um, it gives you two surfaces. It gives you a two, a, a desktop surface. And then the, a separate level for the monitor and laptop. And you can adjust the whole thing up and down. Um, and it's pretty easy to adjust up and down. So you just unscrew a, a big chunky screw thing and then you lift it up. And it's, it's sort of, uh, I guess, pneumatically balanced so that it's easy to lift up and then easy to push back down again. So I've been using that for about a week now and I'm really, really liking it. I mean, there are a few nitpicks I have about it, but, uh, all in all, I've, I've found that I've been just kind of naturally, 
uh, raising it up uh, when I'm tired of sitting and pushing it back down when I'm tired of standing up and not really thinking about it that much. So it, it kind of integrated, once I got it set up, it integrated into my life pretty quickly. And I'm really, really happy to have a desk set up that I can stand up at now very easily. So yeah, recommended. All right, Josh, what are your picks? Okay, so I have um, I have some reading picks. Uh, one is, uh, so uh, years ago, uh, Richard Feynman gave a talk called There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, where he basically uh, put the idea out there of something that turned into what we now call nanotechnology. Uh, so he he pretty much uh, created the whole field in this talk, <laughs> and that, but based on that, uh, a science fiction writer named Hal Draper uh, wrote this very clever short story. It's only a couple pages long, uh, entitled uh, "Manuscript Found in a Library," and uh, it's sort of a cautionary, hilarious tale of uh, what can happen when your uh, basically internet search technology gets out of control, <laughs> and 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 the dangers of corruption, so information corruption, index corruption. I guess we'll leave it at that. So, uh, fun reading. Yeah, it's it's amazing how uh, how many people still talk about manuscript found in a library, uh, and it was written a really long time ago. So that's it for me. All right, I've got a pick. It's something I've been trying lately. It's called the Secret Weapon, and you can find it at thesecretweapon.org. Basically, it's a GTD or getting things done system using Evernote and your email. And uh, so far, I'm really liking it. There are a few things that I'm probably going to tweak on it. But for the most part, it's been really interesting to give it a shot. And so uh, I've actually been sticking with it longer than I've stuck with any of the other systems that I've tried to use. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, see where, where things go from here. But anyway, um, so that's, that's a pick. And uh, I know we've picked Evernote before, but I'm just going to mention that again because it is such an awesome tool. Uh, ben, what are your picks? So I have one more pick to share. Um, so uh, last night I started assembling um, a bookcase that I had bought from Ikea. And to sort of keep me entertained while I was doing this, I started watching a talk called Narcissistic Design by Stuart Holloway, who works on Clojure and uh, Datomic, their database. And the talk was so good that I got so absorbed in it that I actually built the bookcase wrong and uh, had to sort of destroy it, taking it apart, and I'm now waiting on replacement parts from Ikea. <laughs> That's like, awesome. Yeah. It is basically a backing that goes on that I like installed completely flipped and uh, yeah, nailed it in with about 20 nails and then stood it up and was like, oh, okay. Well, that was a waste of time. Best endorsement for a talk ever. It's so yeah, good. Really, in my really good talk. Yeah, really good talk. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and start wrapping up the show. Um, one thing that I do want to mention, we have a silver sponsor and that is Elixir Sips. And you can find that at elixirsips.com. Basically, it's uh, it's like Ruby Tapas, short videos on Elixir instead of Ruby. So if you're interested in learning Elixir, it's a, it's a good way to go. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Thanks for coming. What, what's Absolutely. Our, what's our book club book next time or in a few months? Uh, Functional Programming for the Object-Oriented Programmer by Brian Merrick. And I think we're going to do the episode on December 18th. And there is a code to get you $5 off. And I don't remember it off the top of my head. It's something like, please remember the starving artist. Um, but uh, we will get it in the show notes. So take a look there. All right. Uh, thanks for coming, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. It's my pleasure. 
All right. Well, we'll wrap this up. We'll catch you all next week.